Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Turn to Isaiah 61. Before you get there, I'll give you some really good tidings if you haven't heard. Uh, beginning between Monday and Wednesday of next week, uh, we go into the red tier, which means restaurants can open for indoor dining, 25%. Uh, movie theaters will open back up, same thing. Uh, shopping malls are back to 50%, along with food courts. So for those of you that are just dying for a corn dog, uh, you know it. You'll you'll be able to get that. But we have some good things going on in the COVID front. Um, we have all kinds of good news with regard to uh, vaccinations here uh, in our particular neck of the woods in Los Angeles County. And so uh, I want to just encourage you to continue to pray. Uh, we're going the right direction, finally. Uh, here's a good one for you parents. Schools are going to be opening back up uh, as well. Uh, you can have private gatherings again with a handful of families. And so uh, keep praying. Just announced today that the plan is to try and have all those who wish to be uh, vaccinated that are adults vaccinated by the end of May and for things to be back to normal sometime in the middle of summer, maybe by July 4th. So uh, keep praying, keep doing your part. Uh, the Lord is indeed delivering us, and that is certainly the message that we find here in Isaiah chapter 61. Would you join me? Let's pray. And let's take this first verse and a half. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, in you, Christ Jesus, there is always good tidings. There has always been good tidings. You've always had a plan to redeem and to save, and you were mighty to that end. And we pray that through your word you'd speak to us tonight. We'd ask that you encourage us and strengthen us. Lord, how we confess that we are weary. Some of us came tonight and we're, we're cast down. Our, our eyes are maybe gazing on this earth, and we would just simply ask that you'd help us have our hearts lifted to heaven and that as your children, uh, you would speak to us. We thank you, we praise you, and we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Isaiah 61. And now Isaiah is making the march towards the end, and he's beginning to speak about that age that is to come. And he says, For the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me, Preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. You know, sometimes as the Old Testament authors wrote, they were completely unaware of what it was that they were writing. And I say that because the Bible actually gives us very clear understanding in and of itself of this truth. And in fact, the New Testament even speaks of this, as Paul would write 
uh, to Timothy and as Peter would write in his epistles, uh, that they would write as God inspired them. And it says actually there in, in 2 Peter in chapter, chapter 1, knowing first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, as God authors Scripture, he has intended for mankind to understand things in his time. He has chosen to reveal to us not everything, but all things that we need to know in their time. And so very often when you look at these Old Testament passages of Scripture that are prophetic, there is a really good chance that in the Old Testament days they would have certainly misunderstood the intent. And there is even an indication that in the New Testament that during the life of Jesus, that these prophecies were still misunderstood. And you can see that definitely in this particular passage. Because imagine a Jewish person, during the time of Jesus, hearing of this wonderful freeing of the captives, and then thinking about their own life, were under the heavy hand of Rome. We're not only not free, our people have actually not been free for 1,500 years. Matter of fact, we spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And so it doesn't surprise us that trying to understand the difference between the first coming and the second coming of the Lord might be a little difficult. Or perhaps understanding that the church would be birthed. Now think of this for a moment. Remember what Jesus said that he desired that the Jewish people, his own people, know him, but they didn't want to do that. And so that would be given to another. He came to the Jew first, then the Gentile, that literally the first century church would be largely Jewish. But it would expand to the Gentile world and would grow as a Gentile church. The apostles, all Jewish. But the first century church, almost completely Gentile. This is written to Jewish people in captivity. And so as we think on this passage, the Apostle Paul is speaking of these things which uh, he would call a mystery. He would look at this passage of scripture ultimately that will be spoken of through Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Jesus actually quotes from this particular passage of Scripture. And so here's the Apostle Paul basically looking at these things, Peter looking at these things, going, well, we don't quite have all the pieces yet. And so some of the things that we read in Scripture, even tonight, are still future. The question is, which ones? Which parts? Where are we on this timeline uh, that we call uh, the last days? The, the, where are we in world history in that sense? And to that, much of this, and even tonight, some of this is going to make sense later. Daniel, as he's writing, just before he gets to chapter 9 and makes this incredible 
prophecy of these 70 weeks, one of which is still yet unfulfilled tonight. In chapter 8, verse 26, he reminds us that these things are for later. It was a vision of evenings and mornings. And he said, therefore, seal up this vision, for it refers to many days in the future. He would go on in chapter 12 to seal up the book, and he says, there until the time of the end, where many shall run to and fro, and knowledge will increase. Now let me give you a little understanding of how difficult it would have been during even the time of Jesus for someone to walk around. You all are blessed. Virtually everyone in here, if you don't have a Bible in your lap, you probably have a cell phone or a tablet that has a Bible program on it and has many versions of the Bible. But people did not have those things especially during the time of Isaiah, they did not have those things during the time of Christ. Virtually no one even possessed the scriptures themselves. And if they did, they might only have the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That You might find all five of the Pentateuch in, in a given synagogue. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, that what we would call the books of the law. But they definitely would not have had every one of the prophetic books. So they wouldn't have had Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. They wouldn't have had Jeremiah and Malachi. They, they wouldn't have possessed those books. By the time you get to the New Testament, maybe they might have had, we believe that the first actual written gospel was Mark's gospel. There may have been a copy of that before John died on the island of Patmos that was circulating. The oldest pieces, what we call autographs or original pieces of the scriptures that we have of the New Testament, most of them come from 200 AD. So you can see how rare it would be that someone would have the actual information to do an in-depth Bible study involving all of the prophetic books. Now fast forward to the days of the internet. I don't know how many of you have that are in here. It looks like most everyone has been alive since roughly the early 1990s when the internet really becomes available to the rest of us and wasn't just a government tool that was used for the military for the most part. And you certainly didn't own, probably in the 1990s, a personal computer that had much computing power. My first laptop had a 200 megabyte hard drive. 200 megabytes. Now, to give you an idea, probably most of you have multiple gigabyte cell phones. You may have a 128 gigabyte cell phone. You, you would have thousands of times more data in your cell phone than I had in my first laptop in the early 1990s. Now advance a little bit forward to today. This little guy right here is thousands of times more powerful than the computers that we use to put people on the moon. Your cell phones are thousands of times more powerful than the computers that we used to put people on the moon. 
you now can have a Bible program on your phone. When I'm studying, very often I have at least five or six different versions of the Bible open simultaneously. And I can search every last verse in all of those that are open, along with commentaries on the same and language tools and all those kind of things. That's only happened in the last 20 years. So when Daniel writes, in the last days, knowledge will increase, I believe he was speaking about not just general knowledge, which is also true, but knowledge of the scriptures themselves. Because we can do things today that never before in human history were even attainable. I grew up in a time, I was, we were still studying using book stands to op- open multiples of books on a desk, using bookmarks. And so now imagine that we can actually compare Scripture to Scripture, do things like word searches. I can tell you that in the King James Version of the Bible, 2,278 times, one or more of the words that are translated God, El, Eloah, or Elohim, exist in your entire Bible. Do you know how hard that would have been even 50 years ago? You'd had to gone through and literally circled and counted on a piece of paper someplace. See, we can now look at the scriptures very differently. We can do very in-depth studies of what all of the prophets said about any given time. Now I want to draw your attention to how precise the scriptures are. In Luke chapter 4, if you're with us in our study through Luke, there in verses 16 to 20, Jesus actually quotes from this particular passage of scripture. So Isaiah is writing in 686 B.C., Jesus comes along some 700 years later. And so it was that he came to Nazareth, verse 16, Luke chapter 4. Where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he handed the book of the prophet, he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. So this is a very, very prominent synagogue. They don't just have a Torah scroll. They've got the great scroll of Isaiah. It's a scroll. It's probably at least 25 to 30 feet long. It's got no chapters and no verses. It is as if you had written a letter in about 16 font and it's on a single piece of stitched together parchment. Jesus has handed that scroll. He stood up to read. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written. Check out what Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah as Dr. Luke listens in and records it in his gospel. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has 
appointed me and anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. You sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery the sight of the blind, and to set at liberty those who were oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now notice what follows. Because if you're looking at your Bible back in Isaiah 61, you know that that is not the end of verse 2. But Jesus stops right there. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant. He sat down, and the eyes of all who were there in the synagogue were fixed on him. There's more to that sentence. Exactly where I stopped reading tonight, Jesus stopped. Why would he do that? Because between the first half of verse 2 in your Bible and the second half of verse 2 in your Bible, you have the first coming and you have the second coming of Jesus. And so Jesus talking about setting the captives free is talking about the age of grace. The next half of the verse is talking about the wrath of God. The vengeance of the Lord. And this is super important. Because if Jesus had continued on, he would have blended the first and the second coming together. Because he said, today in your hearing is this fulfilled. Is what fulfilled? The preaching of the good news of the gospel. The setting free of the captives. The recovery of sight to the blind. Remember what Jesus did. He came to heal the blind. He, he came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to set the captives free. That's what he came to do. He did not come the first time to extract his vengeance on this earth. But he is coming again to do exactly that. And so Jesus stops. That's how precise the word of God is. The disciples, you might imagine, were a little confused. Because they were actually hoping he was there. For vengeance. For wrath. To bring about the kingdom. To anoint and appoint the Jewish people to their rightful place. Because they were God's chosen people and still are. And so this is where our understanding, exactly as Daniel said, for a later time, when knowledge is increased, we now are looking back on all of that history, aren't we? We can see the age of grace with hindsight. We can see for 2,000 years the gospel's been preached and people have been saved one by one, sometimes in mass, the church has existed, and that church has not been predominantly Jewish. It's been largely Gentile. And so Isaiah the prophet, not knowing the things that he would write, but being instructed by the Holy Spirit, includes both comings. So what was fulfilled? What was yet to be fulfilled? Well, Jesus definitely preached the good tiding, the good news. It's 
actually what the gospel means, amen? That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. That's really good news, isn't it? You know, if you are here tonight and you are in Christ Jesus, the best news that you have ever gotten is that Jesus loves you. Amen? And when you believed on him, your whole eternity was taken care of. And so now look at how the gospel authors or some of the people in the New Testament, or even like John the Baptist, he actually asked the question. If you remember back in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist is preaching and he actually says, are, are you the one or are we supposed to look for somebody else? Now he had already said Jesus was the one. Do you know why John the Baptist actually said that? Because between when John was at the River Jordan baptizing and chapter 7 of Luke's gospel, he's been captured by Herod. He is now in the fortress of Machaerus. He, he calls out Salome and Herod for their infidelity, and he's about to be beheaded. Even the great John the Baptist, who Isaiah 40 said was to prepare the way of the Lord, was a bit confused about the comings of the Lord. It's easy to see. It's not a surprise. John expected the kingdom to come immediately. Jesus actually doesn't answer that question in a direct way. He answers it in an indirect way. Jesus said, I, I didn't come the, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, that's the inference here in Isaiah. I came to present the truth of the gospel so men could be saved and set free. And this is the heart of Jesus throughout the gospels. I got in this email conversation a couple of days ago with a guy who was just absolutely sure that we were an emergent church and you know we didn't have the right view of sin and all those kind of things and, and the reason he said that is you know you don't really call it out i said well you don't know me very well because if you've ever listened to me i'm pretty rough on sin but i handle it the way jesus does jesus the only people that jesus was ever in their face was the pharisees the hypocrites, the Sadducees. What did he do to the woman at the well? Where are your accusers? Go and send no more. Jesus was gracious to people who repented. The only people who he ever got on their case were people who were unrepentant, who, whose lives were essentially marked by the fact that they didn't want to do what God asked them to do. And so for me, when I look at what is going on here in this particular chapter of Isaiah, it is marvelous to me because Isaiah sees, though he doesn't probably see it literally, he's actually seeing the age of grace. He's seeing Jesus preaching the good news of the gospel. He's seeing the day and time that you and I live in tonight 
He's seeing the ability for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. And, and he's speaking this incredible gospel message, even though the gospel itself isn't going to come for 700 years. Because that's what Jesus came to do. So you might ask yourself, well, who are these captives in this chapter? Notice what it says. He knew the Spirit of the Lord was upon him to preach good tidings. That literally renders, if you take it from Hebrew to Greek, to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel to the poor. To send Messiah to heal the brokenhearted. And that is exactly what's been going on for the last 2,000 years. The gospel's been preached. Brokenhearted people have had their hearts healed. And then he goes on to say to proclaim liberty to the captives and the open of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is absolutely marvelous to me. Because I don't know about you, but I am one of those guys that I've always looked at the Old Testament. And and when I was young in the faith, I was like, I was pretty sure there is no way in the world David was saved. The dude was an adultering murderer, right? Growing up in a legalistic church, I figured, well, that's it. First Corinthians, he's out. That's the way I looked at it. I thought, man, you know, the heavy hand of the Lord. Don't make a mistake. Don't think that I'm saying that what David did was ever right. Don't make the mistake in thinking that God doesn't want us to absolutely repent and turn from sin. He does. But every person who's saved is a saved sinner. Every last one of us. Some of us got a few more sins in our account than others. But there's none righteous, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the good news of the gospel is that you can be saved. And so what happened to those who were alive, let's say like Abraham... Isaac, Sarah, Rachel, Rahab. How about Isaiah himself? Jeremiah. Because we're all pretty sure that the only way anybody gets to heaven is by being saved through believing in Jesus. Amen? Isaiah tells us what happened. Jesus went to the prison and preached the good news to those who were captive. Where were they in prison? Luke 16 tells us. Paradise. You get this incredible picture. Lazarus, who dies a beggar, 
The rich man is on one side of this great gulf. He can see Lazarus. Lazarus is blessed. The rich man is in torment. Jesus called that place paradise. Ephesians chapter 4 reminds us of this. Verse 7, to each one of us his grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And therefore, and he's quoting there from Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now what does this mean, Paul said? But that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth, and he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fulfill all things. What all things? The prophecy of Isaiah 61. You see, there were a whole bunch of Old Testament saints waiting for the day when Jesus said, it's time to go. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, by whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison. By whom who? Jesus. Who formerly were disobedient. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. You ever thought about what it was like to be alive during the time of the patriarchs when people lived to be nearly a thousand years old? We get kind of sick of wearing masks, right? We're like, we think we've gone to Gehenna because of masks. Imagine you're Noah and you spend 120 years building an ark in your front yard. And every day people come to your house and they go, you're an idiot, dude. What is wrong with you? There is no body of water anywhere near here, and this whole rain thing, we've never seen it. You talk about faith? Talk about faith. Can you imagine when Noah died? Can you imagine Noah with Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Rahab and all those people? who were waiting that the book of Hebrews declares, waited in faith until when? Hebrews says they died in faith, not having received the promise, but God having reserved something better for us, that they, apart from us, couldn't be brought, the Bible says, into a completed state. In other words, until Jesus said from the cross, to tell us die, it is finished, they were still waiting. And so the book of Isaiah actually gives us this incredible picture of what would happen prior to the church age. Jesus dies on the cross. Sheol, the righteous part called paradise. Remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross that believed? Today you will be with me where? Paradise. He didn't say heaven. He said, when you die, until I'm raised again, you're going to go where Abraham's going. But he says, I'll meet you there. And then you're going to be free. 
you know, imagine the joy. Matthew 27 actually gives the picture that after Jesus rose, that there were actually people wandering around who had previously been dead, kind of like Lazarus was resurrected. So were there many? They were released from prison. Paradise is emptied. And so Jesus, in Luke's gospel in chapter 4, and the prophet Isaiah see this exact time to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That your salvation would be secured. That's the accepted day. It's already happened. And so that's why the Apostle Paul could write there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, now to be absent from the body is to be where, church? Present with the Lord. There's no more waiting. The captives have already been set free. You take your last breath here, you're going to open your eyes in heaven. But now notice what is said as we continue. I thought you said God was loving. Where's all this grace stuff? Notice what comes next. And the day of the vengeance of our God. Now do you know why Jesus stopped in the middle of that, what we call verse 2? Because that day still hasn't happened. Jesus came the first time to bring grace as the lamb. When he comes the second time, he's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah to exact his revenge, his vengeance on this earth, primarily for what the world has done to the Jewish people. Joel chapter 3. Isaiah's not going to get that. He's not going to see that in that moment. You see, the day of vengeance of our God, you know, people often say, well, you know, know, I don't think God's going to do that. Really? There's a little over 250 verses in your Bible that says otherwise. That God actually is going to pour out his wrath on this earth. The great news is that if you're here tonight as a believer... You don't need to fear that time. This time that from Revelation 6 to Revelation 19, I don't encourage you. This is not a bedtime passage, okay? People say, well, you know what should I read? You know, if you're going to read before bed, read, you know, one of the Gospels or something that's a little, you know, read the Psalms. Don't read Revelation 6 to 19 before you go to bed. Why? Because it's the pouring out of God's wrath on this earth. It is the vengeance of our God. It is the return of the king, the real return of the king, not J.R.R. Tolkien's return. It's the real king coming back to really claim his earth and to punish all unrighteousness. Do you notice the way that Romans chapter 1 opens? It actually says there in chapter 1, that the wrath of God abides against all unrighteousness. It doesn't say that the wrath of God is poured out yet on all unrighteousness. It says it dwells, it lives, it's still there. It's waiting to be exacted. 
And one by one, by God's grace, you can escape that wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9 says, For we have not been appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation. Why? Because the good news saves you from the wrath of God. The good news keeps you from having to worry about the wrath of God. But if you don't choose the good news, the wrath of God still abides. And it must be appeased. You know, we always use that phrase, you know, without the bad news, there really isn't any good news and vice versa. The bad news is you're a sinner. The good news is there's a savior, amen? The bad news is you've sinned. The good news is he's greater than all your sin. You see the the conflict between those two things, but there's a definite superiority to the good news, amen? The good news is better news than the bad news is bad. Isaiah sees that as he writes these words, but he probably doesn't understand it. The day of vengeance. Revelation 6 says it this way, fall on us and hide us from the face of the Lamb, for his day of wrath has come. Church, I don't know about you, but when I, when I think of that, if I thought I was going to go through it every day that I'm on this planet, I would be very concerned. But I'm not very concerned. Because I will not be here when God pours out his wrath. Now, there are a lot of people who think you will. And I get challenged everyone. You know, I don't know why you're not preparing the church to go through the tribulation. Well, that's because I don't believe the church is going to go through the tribulation. Why aren't you making people aware of the fact that, you know, they might get the mark of the beast? Because you're not going to get the mark of the beast, okay? If you're here tonight and you're in Christ Jesus, you will not ever get the mark of the beast. Just square that away in your own head and heart. Because the mark of the beast is very specifically for those who worship the Antichrist. That comes after a very important event called the rapture of the church. Where the church is finally caught up into heaven forever to be with the Lord. And it happens before the wrath of the Lamb. And I can tell you, I can really see that. Look at Revelation chapter 6 to 19 and ask yourself do you see any mention of the church? The answer is no. There's not one mention of the church. Why? Because they're in heaven. It's all about what's going on on earth. Why do some people reject the rapture of the church? I want to just give you a handful of things just to think on. Because there are some really incorrect assumptions that have some good premise to them. One of the most common arguments I I have people tell me is that, well, we should all have to go. Why should anybody be spared from it? I mean, the first century church was, you know, they were wrapped in animal skins and covered in, in tallow and then lit on fire in Nero's garden. You know, why should they have gone through that? And we live in all this wonderful goodness that's on the earth right now. How come we should not have to go through that? And on one hand, you could say, well, that's fair. The problem is 
is that it's also incorrect and unscriptural. Because God plainly states he's not going to put us through that wrath because it's for the purpose of punishing evil. And if he has made you righteous by the blood of the lamb, you are not subject to the punishment of your sins anymore. That's part of the glorious thing of being a believer. The wrath of God used to abide on me, and now I've been set free from that wrath. So there's no reason for God to punish those for whom Christ died. That would be like punishing Jesus. It's like, well, son, it wasn't quite good enough for Jeff, so I'm going to put the wrath on him, even though you already took it for him. He made him sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? So when people say, ah, oh, you know, I just, I just don't see it, you know, because we should all have to go through it. It's just an emotional contention. It makes some sense, but it plainly denies what 1 Thessalonians 5 actually teaches. Jesus actually promised in Revelation chapter 3, I will keep those from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them, to try those who don't know the Lord. We're going to be kept from that. The second thing is to fail to distinguish between the church and Israel. And this is the important part for the remainder of of our time here in this chapter tonight. You see, God's still got a plan for Israel. And if you can confuse the church and national Israel, if you say the church has now absorbed the Jewish people and there's just the church, then you miss the whole reasoning for why Isaiah writes the rest of what's written. Matthew 24 actually gives us some further implications. And remember, Jesus in that chapter is actually on the Temple Mount explaining to his Jewish disciples the events that are going to occur in national Israel and the other nations that are going to lead to his return as their Messiah. I can pretty much guarantee you, if most of you know a handful of things about the Jewish people, you also know that a very large percentage, a vast majority of them are not believers in Messiah yet. Amen? If anything, they're, they're primarily secular. But they're certainly not evangelical Christians. And in fact, when you travel to Israel, it is pretty tough to be an evangelical Christian in Israel, a Messianic believer. They're not real popular. Because there is a Jewish nationalism which takes religion and kind of combines it with the national life of Israel. And yet, Jesus is explaining this to his disciples uh, during the week before his crucifixion. He, he, can you imagine? They're hearing, it's like, what, we're not going to inherit the kingdom? The temple's going to be destroyed? What's going on with that? Well, that's because I didn't come to save the temple. I came to seek and save that which is lost. 
I, I came to save those who would believe on my name. I came to give eternal life to those who would receive me by grace and through faith. And so Jesus goes on, two will be in the field and one taken and the other one left. And two women will be grinding at the mill and one taken and the other one left. You see what Jesus was saying there, there's going to be believers and non-believers, but more importantly, there are going to be people who will be saved during the tribulation. Who are those people? Well, the Bible pretty plainly declares that that is going to be the Jewish people. They're the focus. That's the 144,000, the elect of God. Why? Because the church isn't on earth. The church is going to come back with Jesus. So failure to distinguish those things gets you in all kinds of theologic troubles. So Matthew records these things so that we can kind of look at it and go, hmm, who's he talking about there? Jesus goes on to say, well, the angels are going to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. And then it says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, start to speak of the second coming. Again, not, not being able to distinguish between those two, two events gets you in all kinds of difficulties. Here's the good news, church. The rapture could happen tonight. There's not a single thing left in your Bible, not one piece of prophetic word that needs to be fulfilled for the Lord to come get his church. There are all kinds of things that have to happen for the second coming to happen. There are literally dozens of things, specific things, that have to happen for the second coming of the Lord. I can't wait. So I live expectantly. I walk around and say, Lord, you could be back today. Somebody was asked, I, you know, I got my COVID shot and, you know, I... I get emails from people. It's like, well, you know, you just got the mark of the beast. <laughs> no, I actually didn't just get the mark of the beast. I'm sorry. I know you'd like to think that, but being as the Antichrist hasn't risen, the mark of the beast is not here. You don't need it to buy and sell. So sorry, you're wrong. There's another reason that the church has kind of missed the rapture throughout history, and that's primarily because of the same reason that we've had a difficulty studying scriptures in their totality up until the last 50 years or so. That's because people couldn't sit down with all of the books that were ever written about the rapture of the church or the Antichrist. And so if you, you look at some of the teachings of the early church theologians like Ephraim, he actually talked about the rapture of the church uh, all the way back in 306 BC, or 306 AD, rather. And so we, we know that one day the Lord is going to take us home. I'm absolutely convinced of it. And one of the reasons that I believe that is because it's the only thing that answers the missing pieces of how we escape the wrath of God when the Lamb comes to exact his vengeance, the place that Jesus stopped when he read from Isaiah 61 when he was in the synagogue because he stopped before he got to the vengeance part and he said the rest of it was fulfilled in your hearing. 
Well, what did he bring about? The age of grace. And the age of grace is still going on. So that tells me that what the rest of Isaiah says here in chapter 61 has to be referring to later. It's got to be after the age of grace, after that time that the Apostle Paul said was the time of the Gentiles. The day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, verse 2 says. Verse 3 goes on to say to console those who mourn in Zion. In other words, this picture of the kingdom age. To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Who is the they? It's the Jewish people. It's those that have been saved after, in and out of the tribulation. You know, you can apply some of this in a metaphoric way to the church, of course. You know, we've all been given beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, but he's speaking of them, of they. He's directly at a group of people. A garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Where did Jesus stop? Before the wrath and after the good news. So these people are clearly after the wrath. After the vengeance begins. And if Christ died to save us from it, this has to be a group of people that somehow get saved when the wrath of God is poured out, there's only one group. The book of Revelation declares that that is the, the main focus of a specific group. And you know them as the 144,000. The 12,000 out of every tribe and tongue. Out of all of the tribes of Israel. They shall rebuild the old ruins and shall raise up the former desolations and repair the ruined city the desolation of many generations shall come to pass. The rebuilding in that age of the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be substantial. And of course, we see the beginning of that today. But it's crazy because your Bible actually declares that there are going to be two more Middle East wars that are going to exceed all of the, the horrors that we've ever seen on this earth. One of them is the Battle of Gog and Magog, which I happen to believe is going to take place over a long period of time, maybe what we would call a campaign, and then ending with the Battle of Armageddon. And again, that's that non-bedtime story of Revelation uh, chapter, after you get to chapter 16, 17, 18, 19, and the Lord returns. There's all kinds of things going on in the land of Israel today, but they're not all the things that are going to happen one day. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. The sons of foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. God is going to restore the Jewish people. It's a beautiful picture of what will happen in the very last days. It's going to take this this child that Hosea saw as lo ami. Uh, that's not my child, is going to make it once again 
that, that beautiful child of God. It's Hosea saw, go and take your wife and buy her again and redeem her. She was in slavery, this, this picture of how God would redeem Israel. Buy it back. Isaiah goes even further out into the prophetic window, and you shall be named as priest of the Lord. You know what's interesting? Because that means you're joining with the children of the Lord, with Christians, with believers by grace, because we are also called priests of the Most High God. And ultimately, the Bible says we rule and reign with him. She'll call you the servants of God, and you shall eat, here it goes, the riches of the Gentiles. Verse 6, And in their glory you shall boast. You see, Isaiah and Jesus see this incredible picture of, of those who love the Lord, serving the Lord, speaking for the Lord, being that person that the book of Colossians says, whatever you do in word and deed, do it heartily unto the Lord. Serving Jesus. The glorious kingdom age. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. And therefore in their land, they shall possess a double. In what land? The land of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They weren't even back into that land until May 14th of 1948. But they are now. And they're getting towards a double portion. They just finished a brand new high-speed train between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. It's incredible what's going on in Israel right now. But some of that is going to get wiped out in a couple of upcoming wars. Then the king's going to come. They shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. You know, in order for something to be everlasting, it has to be everlasting. Not temporary, in other words. For I, the Lord, love justice, and I hate robbery and burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make them an everlasting covenant. And their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles. Again, you can see the difference between the them and the they and the Gentiles. Why? Because it's speaking of the Jewish people. Specifically. And their offspring from among the people. And all who see them shall acknowledge them. That they are the poster posterity of the Lord whom he has blessed. And they'll rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he's clothed me in garments of salvation. Church. What's the only name under heaven whereby anyone can be saved? It's Jesus. And so if this is after the age of grace, this has to be a reference to actual salvation in Christ. And it's speaking of the Jewish people. For he has covered me with a robe of righteousness. How does that happen? By believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness is draped upon you. You're, you're given a garment of righteousness. As the bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as the bride adorns herself with jewels, 
As the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden, the things that are sown into it spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. It's this beautiful picture. We should all be praying, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen? He's got a plan. And it's good. I don't know about you, but I can't wait. It's like, look, you know, yeah, you're probably all going to have to get shots if you want to get on a plane anyway, so get over it. But it's not the end of the world. It works out really good for the children of God in the end. I had a conversation with a guy today. He's, you know, he's just, I posted a thing on Instagram and he's like, oh, I can't believe that you told people to get the vaccine. And, I, and he, you know, he started to tell me his thing that he heard someplace in the deep bowels of the internet that, you know, we were all going to be turned into zombies or something. But, and I asked him, I said, do you have a degree in microbiology by chance? And he, of course, said no. He said, do you understand what messenger RNA actually does? He said, no. And I said, so do you have any idea what this vaccine actually does? He said, well, no. And I said, but you're against it. Is that correct? And he said, yes. And I said, why? And, and, you know, he just went on to tell me how he Googled it. Can I just tell you something? Not everything on the Internet is true. You might want to check your facts before you start throwing them around as fact. Because actually what mRNA or messenger RNA does is that it kind of instructs. It's like information that allows your cells to, to build other things, in this case proteins. And all it does, it does not interact with your DNA at all. It, doesn't in, it does not go inside the cellular nucleus. And so if you're worried about that stuff, you're worried about the wrong thing. It doesn't even do that. Why am I saying that? Because God's got it under control. He knows what he's doing. And we shouldn't be freaking out over silly things like vaccines when the world is perishing. When people need to hear about the gospel. It's kind of self-centered for the church to be running around going, you know, well, I'm not going to get I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not going to get vaccinated. Like, it's like, come on, let's let's just get this show on the road. So I just pray, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. If it's today, that's great. If it's next week, it's great. If it's the week after that, it's great. If it's next year, it's still great. Because he is greatly to be praised. Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your blessings, your amazing word. Lord, to think that you, Jesus, the author of all of this, put those words into the mouth of Luke that you stopped and literally paused closed that scroll up and handed it back to the attendant and said, today in the sight of your hearing, these things have been fulfilled. Lord, the age of grace was launched. It just causes us to be mind-boggled at the truth of your word. 
And so, Lord, we thank you for that truth. We thank you that you haven't appointed us unto wrath, but unto salvation. That they that wait upon you will be renewed in strength, mount up with wings as eagles, so run and not grow weary. Lord, that they who hide under the shadow of the wings of the Most High God will be safe, that you are a stronghold and a fortress to the weak. Your promises are true. And Lord, we believe you. And so, Lord, excite your church about the days that are ahead. Make us busy, Lord. There's plenty to do. And so help us to get busy about your business. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.